from Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program on this Monday morning. So good to be with you on the show. And we've got a fantastic lineup as always. First on the agenda, if you've been wondering about issues in Israel with regards to legal problems in the country, out the country, well, we have you covered because we've got a fantastic person in the studio. She is Natasha Haustorf. She's a barrister from the UK. She's been out talking at Limud and for the Zionist Federation. And uh, she's going to be talking to us about some of the legal issues that you can expect to hear about in the news coming up in the next while. She's also part of UK Lawyers for Israel and does a lot of enormously important work helping to protect Jews and Israel all around the world in legal spaces. Natasha, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome to Chai FM. Benji, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you and to be in South Africa. Yes, really, really nice to have you uh, with us at the moment. Natasha, let's dive right in in terms of some of uh, the legal questions that are going on because let's start internally. Normally, I would have you on a show like this to talk about some of our external things, but we've seen so much about this uh, uh, legal reform agenda that's going on in Israel at the moment. It's really big in the news, and we're obviously looking at a lot in this show and in the general media on the politics of the issue, but of course, there's just some good old-fashioned law questions which are at the root of some of this stuff being being debated. And so where I thought we should start is just why don't you take us through some of these core reforms that are actually on the agenda uh, and, and let's help the listeners understand what's actually uh, at stake in some of the actual legal process. Benji, it will be a pleasure. Um, and it's a, a, a lament of mine, perhaps, that the legal issues uh, and the practicalities of what is being proposed have, have seemingly fallen away from the agenda. But of course, you know, Israel is a democracy, um, and we can never take democracy for granted. Democracies can be fragile, depending on their circumstances. But I would say, as democracies go, Israel's is a very robust one, and we can see that from the level of public engagement uh, in the political process, with 70% turnout at the last election. Uh, and then, of course, anyone who's been to Israel um, will understand the importance of democracy on an individual, personal level. You, you take a bus journey in Israel, and uh, invariably there'll be a politics program on the radio, and before too long, the bus driver and the passengers are in their own debate, mirroring the sorts of discussions that are happening in the Knesset uh, in Israel's legislature. Uh, so politics in Israel is, is entirely central to everyday life, and, and apathy on any side is not really an option, especially when one is so frequently presented with you know, life or death situations. But I think, unfortunately, what we're witnessing now is a very troubling rejection of democracy, a rejection of uh, election results and a democratic process in which these judicial reforms uh, have been presented and are being legislated. And I should stress that this is a rejection by minority, a very vocal uh, minority to be sure, but a minority nonetheless, uh, and one in terms of numbers, if you will, that did not pass the electoral threshold of, of four mandates. 
um, the last time the country voted. And democracy is not run on the basis of who shouts loudest or, or who makes the most threats. Um, be that uh, threats of violence to the prime ministers we've heard or threats to um, decline uh, to serve in the reserves. Um, the one thing I think we need to stress is that what is being proposed is not new and there was until recently a general uh, political consensus across the political spectrum on the need to judicial for judicial reform uh, pleas and calls that were uh, being echoed by Gans and Lapid, the leaders of the opposition, until recently Lapid himself, um, rather, there's a rather famous clip that is doing the rounds of him talking in 2016, calling for reform to address judicial overreach. And the about face now is nothing to do, as far as I'm concerned, with the proposals uh, or the content of, of what is proposed in terms of the judicial reforms, but ultimately about bringing down a democratically elected government. Okay, so now you've just made a political argument. I get it, <laughs> right? So well, we, we, underst we understand that. Talk about the laws. What, what, what do they actually mean? So the intention is to correct the anti-democratic uh, imbalance, if you will, caused by judicial overreach. Uh, Aaron Barak's judicial revolution of the 1990s saw the creation of uh, essentially an all-powerful judiciary. And in less than two decades, the Supreme Court did away with standing requirements, uh, the doctrine of non-justiciability under which the court was not supposed to determine political questions. That was also done away with. Uh, and essentially what we saw was um, the judiciary expanding its ability to review matters according to their own ideological or policy uh, positions. And those are the positions held by individual judges. So um, the reforms constitute um, an important part of Israel's ongoing constitutional uh, development process. And crucially, this will be the first time that the court's powers of review have been articulated uh, in law and codified. There are four initial reforms that were originally proposed, an override provision to restore uh, parliamentary sovereignty uh, in Israel, and that would allow the Knesset to reinstate legislation if it were struck down by the court. Uh, the second proposal was to alter the makeup of the Judicial Appointments Committee, and that was intended to end a veto of the legal fraternity on new appointments to the bench. Uh, the third proposal uh, was to clarify the role of government legal advisers so that they opine and do not dictate to the government policies that they may implement. And the fourth proposal, which is the one that has already been legislated, was to constrain the court's ability to wade into the political arena on the basis of a self-given power, I would say under the guise of reasonableness, uh, because it's very unlike any concept of a standard of reasonableness review uh, employed by any court anywhere else in the world. It enabled um, the court to essentially block government action that violates no statute. Uh, and even if it was explicitly authorized by a statute, uh, it could be blocked simply on the basis uh, that the court decide a government had failed, in its opinion, to properly balance the social interests of different parts of society. Um, in that respect, Israel has the most powerful court in the world. Uh, it can decide any issue about any subject, including ongoing military operations, uh, foreign policy, uh, refugee policy, draft policy, uh, and um, who can hold a cabinet position or even uh, be prime minister. And in the context where there has been an abolition of a standing requirement, uh, and in the oh, context... Whoa, 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 I'm going to take you back because yes. most of my listeners 
um, have probably have more legal background than I do, but what does standing mean for the listeners? So standing um, uh, requires that anyone who brings a case have a, a, a particular interest in it and so be affected by it. Uh, and a typical complainant will bring a case that uh, affects them personally. In Israel, anyone can bring uh, any case on the basis of uh, it, it's something that they have no... No interest in. No, no, well, they have an interest in having the matter decided or they wouldn't bring it to the court, but no legal interest in. Um, and that means that, you know, there are uh, 10,000 petitions a year that the court uh, is able to consider uh, on that basis, often on the basis of... Um, NGOs who may have a political agenda to bring cases, uh, that definitely impacts the volume of work that the court addresses. But importantly, it is doing so on the basis of there being no lower court proceedings, uh, no factual record, and it's simply on the basis of what they think is right. Now, there has been a significant backlash politically to the reasonableness reform that has already been implemented. Um, but all of the well-known grounds of judicial review stand, and that includes obvious procedural flaws, discrimination, anything which is ultra vires, um, illegality, and critically also arbitrariness, which was an independent ground of review before Barak invented uh, this new ground of reasonableness, uh, and uh, remains so. Okay, thank you. That, I think, gives us a quite a nice overview of some of the issues, just to, yeah. just to give a few of the, of the things that are on the table. Of course. As South African listeners listening to this thing, right, so we, we're, we're, having, we're having a discussion about Israel. South Africa, you've got a lovely British accent, which betrays some of your, uh, <coughs> um, yeah. your, your, your other background. And so some of our experiences are going to come from these different legal traditions because it's just the simply ones that we know. As South Africans we would be very terrified of the idea of parliamentary sovereignty because it served our country fairly badly in the, in the past. And we have a very high level of traditional review. Mm-hmm. And that's quite different in the UK where the courts, my understanding, have a relatively low level of um, of judicial review on, on, on some issues, but but the parliament is uh, is kind of more, uh, is, is more sovereign because a lot of the people are very much directly elected. So there's more accountability on that side. One of the things which which comes across in the Israel debate when you drill down is what people are saying is that the the current checks and balances in the Israeli system in the parliament, which is a similar one to ours, so we know how unaccountable it can be, are not there. And there's no constitution and there's not a lot of other ways to check executive power. As someone who's thinking about the reforms, is that a concern about where these reforms are going? Do you think that, in your view, that, the, that, the, that these reforms would amount to the court not having enough ability to check the power of a government. The main difficulty here is that it's it's really impossible to properly compare the Israeli system of, of governance um, with other countries because it, it is unique. Um, and while it doesn't have a constitution in the way that South Africans or indeed Americans understand it, uh, there is a constitutional framework, a quasi-constitutional framework in the context of the basic laws that have been incrementally legislated in Israel. Now, there was an intention to draft a formal constitution in 1948 when Israel declared independence, but other things got in the way, including Israel having to defend itself uh, in in successive wars of of annihilation uh, that were waged against it. And so uh, the option that was adopted was to incrementally legislate with these basic laws. 
Uh, in that sense, what we are seeing in terms of the proposals is a continuation of that constitutional process, uh, because uh, importantly, so far as judicial review is concerned, this hasn't been formally legislated yet. Now, in terms of checks and balances, the comparisons with other countries are, again, extremely difficult to do. The main check and balance uh, in the context of the electoral system in Israel uh, is the populace and the extremely frequent elections uh, that Israelis have the opportunity to vote in. Um, and if that is not sufficient, uh, the solution in my you know, respectful sort of position as a, as a lawyer cannot be uh, judicial supremacy, which is unaccountable, the imposition of, of policy by an unelected bureaucracy and unelected uh, judiciary. I think I think that's indefensible on on um, on democratic grounds. Um, but what you do have is is a system of coalition governments in Israel, which is extremely volatile, and therefore it is very hard for any single party to be sure, or even government to push through a political agenda of any sort. That is, again, unique to Israel, and it's not something which exists, uh, certainly in the UK, although Israel has adopted a, a parliamentary um, supremacy, or a Westminster style of, of, of parliamentary democracy. The only thing I, I would perhaps add to that in terms of the absence of a traditional written constitution, I mean, in the UK we say we have an uncodified constitution, because although... There is an argument that it is written uh, because there are textbooks on constitutional law. Uh, it's not in one place. But what we do have in that context is a, a court which is not politically appointed, but which decides on the law and doesn't enter into the political realm. Um, compare that, say, with the United States, which has a constitutional court where you do have political appointments and judges are frequently having to decide on more political than purely legal issues. Israel needs to decide. If it has a constitutional court, which may be politically appointed and inserts itself into the political arena, or if judges are above politics, but out from political questions, uh, keep themselves on the questions of, of law, uh, and um, are, are not appointed by politicians. You know, those are fundamental questions, which uh, you know, the reforms have, that have been proposed uh, put one potential solution forward uh, and unfortunately rather than engaging with those proposals what we have seen is an opposition that um, has refused to engage in the legislative process and, and that to me is is the most uh, deeply concerning and disappointing aspect of what we have seen. You're listening to 101.9 High FM talking to Natasha Hausdorf today we're going to take a short break when we come back talking more about this issue and others in the legal realm, I'm Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 High FM. From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing, and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders, and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're back with 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman talking today to Natasha Hostoff, who is from UK Lawyers from Israel, discussing a range of legal questions facing the Israeli public in and out of the country. 
Now, Natasha, just one thing I wanted to, to go back, because obviously there's so much terminology here that people might not be familiar with. Uh, the issue of the basic laws, right? you, you, they kind of sound exciting or, or very like sort of firm, uh, but no, no one really seems to be sure what they are. Do you, do you mind just explaining what power they actually have in the Israeli system uh, for the listeners, given that you explained that they have this kind of quasi-constitutional element to them? Um, that question is perhaps one that Israel is, is still working out for itself, mm-hmm. and we'll see what the court uh, does in respect of the, the latest uh, reasonableness reform. It will be deciding as in the number of petitions that have been uh, brought in the autumn. Uh, but the working theory has been that despite the fact that these laws have been passed essentially by um, a straightforward majority, and in many cases the numbers of individuals voting uh, have been very, very low, in particular that the key law that we've heard a great deal about uh, in recent discussions, the Basic Law on Human Dignity from 1992, was passed something like, if my memory serves me correctly, 32 to 23 votes. So the numbers of people voting on um, on, on this legislation, the Knesset, uh, w- w- have not been overwhelming. How, how can it be? How can it be that if you're voting a, 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 a law that has that much constitutional potential in it, if mm. you like, that what people were away on holiday? Like, well, what was what was happening in the Knesset that so few people were voting? I don't know if you know the answer. I'm just kind of very interested. Well, uh, there is an argument that uh, when that law was passed, certainly the magnitude of of um, how this has subsequently been interpreted, uh, first of course by um, Chief Justice Aaron Barak and, and by other judges subsequently, um, was was not what Parliament had intended. Um, and actually, I think that's probably a fair inference from the numbers that were voting uh, on that particular piece of legislation. Um, of course, subsequently, the in- judicial interpretation of that law has um, taken it quite a bit further than the text that was originally passed uh, and has introduced a, an additional concept of equality, even though that is something that the um, the debates around that drafting of that legislation uh, make clear that was it never intended to include. Uh, so there is um, for sure a difficulty in properly assessing the constitutional impact of, of these basic laws, especially when they can, of course, be amended by a simple majority, but for a couple of exceptions. Uh, importantly, of course, the uh, rule of elections every four years and the basic law of the Knesset is something that cannot be straightforwardly amended. Um, but you're right that this is a question that Israeli, uh, the legal fraternity, the court, the parliament is uh, in the process of navigating as part of these reforms because the matter has come to a head, a head in this context. Now, the next big issue, which I think is uh, hard <laughs> to predict what the next big issue is, sometimes can be on this issue in Israel. But what we have had is the, the reasonableness clause passed. You explained some of what that means. Uh, and and now in a bizarre kind of fashion, it's got to go to the 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 Israeli High Court for the for the justices to look at to decide on if effectively they should reduce their power um, and uh, and and not be able to do and what they the law now says they should be able to do, which is kind of a a weird uh, a question. And if the court rejects it, there's a question about how the Knesset might react. Now, I don't want to get into the politics of it because obviously that tends to shed more heat than light. Mm. But is this an unusual question for a court to have to consider its own powers in a democratic 
society? H- hugely so, and, and this is the real possibility, I think, of a, of a constitutional crisis, um, because it, you know your listeners will have seen that the reasonableness reform was passed and, and the sky didn't fall in. Um, so the, the real question and the real concern will be if, if the Supreme Court will not accept um, a law passed by the Knesset that limits its power. And part of um, really a lot of the headlines and, and the hysteria that we've seen over this, and especially when one considers the reaction of the diaspora community, unfortunately, and op-eds and letters, um, is that it perhaps may, some people are arguing that that has or may give legitimacy to the court's refusal uh, if it does indeed refuse to um, to uphold this legislation. And that would create a massive constitutional crisis and it may very well spell uh, an, an increasingly disastrous situation for Israel. Um, the reason I, as a lawyer, am particularly troubled by that is because I can see the loss of faith by a substantial part of the population in Israel in the judicial system, judicial processes. Uh, and, and that is deeply concerning because it, well, I should, I should perhaps explain some of the context of this. And that arises from what many people consider to have been political trials in the past. There are a number of, of important examples uh, of this. Uh, Yaakov Neman, uh, when uh, as justice minister he was indicted, he resigned. Um, thereafter, he was entirely acquitted. Uh, Reuven Rivlin was famously investigated um, and his appointment as justice minister was prevented, after which all the cases against him were closed with no charges. And he, in that context, coined the phrase, uh, the rule of law hoodlums, which some of your mis- listeners may, may be familiar with. Uh, Raphael Eitan was indicted um, and his appointment as Minister of Internal Security was therefore prevented. Uh, he was later acquitted by the court with no case to answer. So, so we've, what you're saying is that there's been a kind of history of the misuse of the prosecuting authorities for political means within Israel. These examples, and, and there are a few others, uh, which I think are important because they're very rarely discussed. Uh, Victor Kalani was uh, indicted. He was fully acquitted. Um, Gal Hirsch, uh, there was a criminal probe initiated which prevented his appointment to National Police commis- Commissioner. Um, most charges were dropped and Andrew Chote Yishai, um, he was indicted on three separate charges. He was hounded through the courts that destroyed his career. Uh, he lost his seat as, as chairman of the statutory bar association and, and thereafter he was fully acquitted. Now, some people may argue that this is simply, you know, the legal process uh, working. Uh, some people are convicted and some people are acquitted. But there is undeniably a pattern here which has caused a great deal of concern to many Israelis and taken together with a situation where government after government has come to the electorate and has essentially said, we're sorry, we haven't been able to deliver on our electoral promises because the court proposes to slap it down or or, or worse still, the legal advisers on the basis of their assessment of what the court will do have vetoed our ability to put this policy through um, so we haven't been able to deliver on our electoral promises, but please vote for us again anyway. That, that has created a dynamic which is extremely troubling, uh, which many people argue is anti-democratic, and coupled with the dramatic uh, downturn in the public approval ratings of, of the courts, uh, it, it spells serious problems. That is a key reason why there was such 
broad consensus on the need for judicial reform before uh, the unfortunate hijacking of the debate over this. Uh, and I think uh, what we have seen, you know, in terms of the protests, and, and they are important and they they do uh, understandably um, draw significant headlines, but they're not new. We've had protests against uh, Netanyahu in particular and other aspects of this uh, coalition government uh, long before these proposals were introduced. Um, they have undeniably, of course, uh, surged as a result of an awful lot of the rhetoric around these reforms. But unfortunately, um, as I'm sure we'll have more opportunities to discuss in the context of, uh, of Lamoud here, the devil is in the detail and the reforms themselves do not propose what they are being reported uh, as, uh, as, as advancing. And, and that is a, a real troubling aspect of misrepresentations around this. Now, now, I spent much longer on the issue of judicial reforms than I would have liked, but I, I do think that uh, having an opportunity to just dig a little bit deeper than you know, your, your standard op-ed, was a, was a, yeah, I didn't want to miss that opportunity. However, one of the arguments, uh, which is interesting uh, and just reminds us that we're not doing this in a bubble, is that uh, if the court is seen to be not independent enough uh, through these reforms or others, uh, that this might give the international community the chance to uh, step in and do international prosecutions of Israelis uh, at something like the, the criminal court or the, or the international court of justice, which is a long way of saying, let's move off the, the judicial reform debate and into what is going on in the international arena in terms of the very large and complicated lawfare project which is happening all around the world against Israel in the United Nations, in the criminal court, um, and and maybe just first of all to address that, if you think that that's a real risk, whether you know you like the, the reforms or not, if, if you mm. think that there is this risk of of Israelis being indicted, and second of all, where are we in this process of of international lawfare against Israel? Well, if I can address first this question on on what uh, lawyers call complementarity, and this arises in the context of the International Criminal Court and its ongoing investigation, uh, and there are some. Um, many non-lawyers, I should say, who have suggested that these reforms are going to affect this process. And it is something that vehemently needs, uh, I think, to be addressed. Uh, I don't see anything that expresses any particular uh, deference to Israeli investigations in the context of the International Criminal Court's conduct so far. I certainly don't see anything that states that Israeli investigations will always result in, in dismissal due to com complementarity. Um, nor do I see anything that, that praises Israeli judicial independence or implies that you know, if Israeli judges were chosen by a process, um, in, including more politicians uh, like the rest of the democratic world, um, in Israeli investigations would, would be viewed differently. Um, so I, I'm afraid I don't see anything related at all uh, to the judiciary in terms of uh, the IDF's investigatory system. Uh, and I think this is... Um, uh, a real dangerous argument because it also belies the approach that the court, the international court, criminal court has, has taken with respect to this investigation thus far. Uh, and when we look at um, the legal questions that have already been presented in the context of jurisdiction and the, the application by the previous prosecutor, Ben Suda, to pre-trial chamber one um, on the question of whether the court had jurisdiction on this, uh, the absence of, of legal reasoning or perhaps the legal acrobatics uh, which were exhibited are, are extremely troubling. Um, and I think it under, underlines 
the uh, significance of the fact that Israel is certainly not going to uh, be afforded a fair hearing in this context. Um, so, so let's just give a bit of context to that, right? Course. To the actual thing, because the ICC is controversial even here in South Africa because we we failed, for example, to arrest Omar al Bashir when he came here, mm-hmm. uh, and there was a huge debate for months about if we were going to uh, arrest Putin when he was supposed to come a couple weeks ago. So, so this is a live issue in in South Africa that people understand from the from the perspective of crazy dictators who are coming and have been charged by the court. It works a little bit differently with Israel so far, from what I can tell, in terms of what the court, where the process, at least, with the court is. Uh, but, but maybe you can tell us where is Israel's relationship in terms of the court at the moment, mm. and, and what is it? Act- what is actually? Where is the play at the moment? Well, Israel is not a signatory to the Rome Statute, which mm. is the governing statute of the court, and for ma- that matter, neither is the United States. Um, and that's interesting because it's despite the. Um, relatively significant involvement of of both of those countries in the early stages of drafting the governing statute of the court. And the key reason that neither Israel nor the United States uh, decided to to, to sign on uh, was that it was clear from the end of that drafting process that it it was a political uh, agenda here. And that was particularly clear in the context of a redefining of, um, of, of, of the crime with respect to transfer of individuals uh, into uh, occupied territory. Um, the inclusion of the words uh, direct or indirect were a, a very stark signal that this was going to be used to target uh, Israel. Uh, we can perhaps come on to uh, more detail on, on the international law that surrounds that. But because of this red flag, um, Israel was uh, uh, took the decision not to become a member. And on that basis, uh, unfortunately, the determination so far on, on the jurisdiction of the court is, is it, I would suggest, un- unfounded legally. There was a, a brave dissenting judgment uh, by Judge Kovacs um, on the question of, of jurisdiction, which picked up not all by any means, but a number of the, of the real problems uh, that the majority uh, of the decision that the majority reached uh, on that question of jurisdiction. But we'll see. I mean, the current prosecutor, Khan, um, doesn't seem uh, as, uh, I don't want to say invested, but he doesn't seem to be prioritising this investigation so much as the previous prosecutor. And, of course, there are other matters that have come before the court, uh, including with respect to Russia now. The court itself has suffered significantly reputationally uh, in that it has many people argue failed um, very badly to live up to the very high expectations of the international community when the court was founded uh, and it is uh, working very hard to salvage its reputation especially after a, a very damning investigation uh, into the court and its, its, its pitiful track record in terms of the prosecutions and the successful prosecutions that it has been able to uh, carry out. You're listening to 101.9 High FM, talking today to Natasha Hausdorff from UK Lawyers for Israel. From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the new Blue Review. 
your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the new Blue Review. Welcome back to the program. Talking today about some of the legal issues that are uh, on live in Israel and in around the world. Uh, and uh, what are some of the things that you should be thinking about with regards to them. Now, Natasha, I'm going to say this horribly, but like briefly, one of the big things that we often see is about the settlements, right? And there's a lot of politics and a lot of uh, actual facts on the ground and human issues and all sorts of things that go into what the, what the issues are with regards to Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, whatever you want to call it, Um but there's also a whole bunch of legalese that, that, that goes around with it. And, and a lot of legal theories that get floated about what constitutes control of that area. And in your, um, various talks and at the different places that you've been speaking at, you've been helping to explain what some of those are. And I just wonder if you wouldn't take some of, few moments to just explain carefully for stupid people like me, um, what some of the basics are that people need to be thinking about when it comes to the legal issues with regards to the territories and not who owns it in, in sort of a way, but, but, but what, what constitutes that kind of a debate uh, in this, on this agenda? Sure. Well, I think there, there are a few better examples of where politics and um, international law converge or where legal and, and political issues are, are conflated uh, to such an extent. Um, and of course, the, the, you know, these words, illegal settlements, inextricably linked with illegal uh, occupation are, are, are frequently uh, and forcefully in, invoked uh, as the linchpin of settlement criticism. Um, and part of the reason that I was as Happen, you know, glad of the opportunity to focus on this in, in some detail in the context of our discussions here in South Africa um, is because there is a real need to push back against these allegations of ille- illegality uh, with what international law actually says. Uh, and the first aspect of that is to look at the legal status of uh, the territory. Looking in that context, I mean, the first thing is that it, it's not possible, I would suggest, legally to class Israel uh, as an occupier. That the, the framework of the law of occupation developed in public international law in order to protect the rights of a former sovereign in a period when they had been ousted from their territory. And the idea behind that was that when territory was returned to that former sovereign after some negotiation or agreement, um, or even another war, it would uh, retur- be returned in largely an unchanged state, apart from developments that were necessary for the benefit of the, of the local population. Um, now, importantly, occupation is also considered to be a temporary state where the rights of that initial sovereign are held in abeyance. Uh, and the measures, therefore, contained in the framework of occupation are temporary interim measures. So the first problem is that the framework of occupation does not work where there is no initial sovereign for Israel to have occupied the territory from. But perhaps an even more important aspect of this is a fundamental rule of customary international law, which is the universal rule for determining the boundaries of new states at independence. And that is called uti possidetis juris. And at its essence, it establishes that a new state when it comes into existence, inherits the borders of the last top-level administrative unit that preceded it. Now, in Israel's case, those borders, those boundaries, 
of the previous administrative unit are those of the British Mandate in 1948. And so everything that comprised the Mandate territory, uh, essentially after the severance by the Brits of Transjordan, in 1992. Now, this rule of international law, as I indicated, it's, it's a fundamental one. It developed in the 19th century in, in South America to avoid a vacuum, uh, terra nullis, as it was called. Upon the withdrawal of the Spanish, it was later applied in Africa and in Asia. Uh, after the withdrawal of European powers, it was applied also at the disintegration of the former communist federations of, of Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia and, and the Soviet Union. And the Chamber of the International Court of Justice dealt with this principle in detail in 1986 in, in the Burkina Faso-Mali case. And it considered uh, that the purpose of this rule was to prevent the independence and stability of new states being endangered by what it called fratricidal struggles provoked by the challenging of frontiers following the withdrawal of an administering power. And in that case, the court referred to the photograph of the territory at the critical date of independence. Of course, in Israel's case, this was the 14th of May, 1948. But even after the War of Independence in 1949, the only state to emerge out of the territory of the British Mandate was Israel, which must therefore, under this default rule, have inherited that same territory. Now, the court in Burkina Faso Mali, I think it's important to stress, it also sees that opportunity to explain the scope of uti possidetis juris. And it stated that a state that acquired territory uh, and sovereignty over that territory through the principle would not lose that territory or that sovereignty simply because another state possessed and administered that territory as, in the, as, as Jordan did in the case of the West Bank and East Jerusalem between 1948 and 1967. Now, applying this universal customary rule, uh, that tells us you know, what Israel's borders were at, at independence. But it's also um, endorsed by Israel's agreements with neighboring states. First, the ceasefire agreements with Egypt and with Jordan and the subsequent peace agreements uh, with both of those states. Because these uh, ceasefire agreements reference the previous boundaries of the British mandate, but importantly, the, the final peace treaty is they ratify borders between Israel uh, and its respective neighbors, again, explicitly based on the boundaries of, of the British mandate. Now, today, um, it is generally accepted uh, that the borders of newly formed states are, are, are determined by the application of uti possidetis juris. Uh, and the doctrine is even said to apply where it conflicts with self-determination. Um, so, I, I, the last point I would perhaps just address on this is that the record has to a certain extent been, been straightened in the context of um, the former U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, clarifying the U.S. position on, on settlements in the West Bank, um, but uh, that they are not per se illegal. Um, there is so much also to say, and I've covered this in some of the talks that I've given, with respect to the, the article of the Fourth Geneva Convention that is deployed um, with respect to those uh, seeking to argue illegality of settlements, Article 49.6 of the Fortune Geneva Convention, there are serious difficulties of, of applying that. Um, so, so unfortunately, yeah. I'd love to get into the Geneva Convention, but we are basically <laughs> out of time, which is unfortunate because it was, it is really, really interesting. If people want to read more about some of these arguments, see the work that you're doing on UK Lawyers for Israel, um, anything else, where can they find you? 
Uh, well, um, there's only one of me, uh, so uh, Natasha Hausdorff will take you to an awful lot of that material. Uh, of course, also UK Lawyers for Israel. O- on the issue that we've just been discussing, the the, print, well, the rule of customary international law, to possidetis juris, uh, if your listeners Google that, they will come across an absolutely superb article in the Arizona Law Review by professors Eugene Kontorovich and Avi Bell, uh, and that gives a great deal more detail and information than I, I've possibly been able to cover with you over the course of this discussion. I, I highly recommend that. Uh, Professor Kontorovich has also done a separate study on settlements uh, and the application of international law in cases of real occupation and, and real settlement activity, as perhaps envisaged uh, by the, the, the provisions of the Geneva Convention. Um, I believe it's called Unsettled, uh, and I, I would um, recommend that enormously also because it is in that context that um, Professor Kondorovich covers the situations of East Timor, Western Sahara, Northern Cyprus, uh, the Syrian occupation of Lebanon, um, Vietnamese settlers in Cambodia, uh, Armenia's encouragement of migration into Nagorno-Karabakh, and, and of course Russia's um, occupation in Georgia, in Abkhazia, and so South Ossetia, and in Ukraine in the context of Crimea. Uh, and the most important thing as lawyers, of course, is that we look at where the law uh, has been applied at precedence and, and we ensure it's equal application and the massive takeaway for example from that article uh, is that the law is being uh, entirely misapplied with respect to Israel. The most important part of a, a legal system is its equal application. And I think that is the best place yes. to, to leave this. Natasha Hastor from UK Lawyers for Israel, thank you so much for joining us on the program and for visiting us here in South Africa. Do have a safe trip back and we hope to have you back soon. It's been a pleasure and uh, I hope to be back in South Africa. It's been a wonderful visit. Fantastic. My name is Benji Schulman and this is 101.9 Chai FM. From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing, and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders, and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM.